Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast, How to Be a Better Person. I might sound a little <laughs> stuffed up today because I can't kick, seem to kick this cold, but you know, it's fine. I'm just going to deal with it. Um, in my last episode about boundaries, I, I kind of touched briefly on the subject of adult attachment and how that plays out in our intimate relationships. So today I wanted to go into a little bit more detail on that so that I can help people understand how these attachment styles are shaped and what that looks like in your adult relationships. So most of the information that I'm going to discuss today I learned in my psychological theories class, but I will also be referencing some things from this book that my therapist recommended to me called Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment by Amir Levine. If anyone is interested in reviewing my source materials, what I'm probably going to do is create a blog post on my website with links to any studies or books that I talk about, just for easy access and so that everything is credited properly. So attachment theory and psychology originated with the work of John Bowlby, who was working as a psychiatrist in London in the 1930s. He worked with emotionally troubled children, and through his work at the time, he discovered just how integral the relationship is between a child and its mother in terms of their like emotional and cognitive development, right? So essentially, certain behaviors in children are linked in relationship towards their caregivers. So, for example, if a baby's upset and crying, normally it's going to seek mom's attention for comfort. Does that make sense? So he was able to observe the extreme distress that young children experience when separated from their mom, even when placated by another caregiver. So if initially babies look to certain figures in their life for security and comfort, and when that figure isn't around, they're experiencing separation anxiety, which is evidence of their attachment to that figure. As they age, they're going to become more independent, but that attachment is still going to be linked with the person who responded the most to the baby's distress signals, regardless of their relationship with anyone else. So essentially what I'm saying is that if a child develops its attachment to mom, who accurately responds to the distress signals at a young age, let's for one second pretend that dad has a super severe drinking problem. And so he doesn't really get the distress signals, right? He doesn't respond the way mom does. He doesn't provide that sense of security and comfort. So when the child is upset, even when he's being properly taken care of and perhaps not neglected, he's still going to want his mom, right? So I should mention that um, Bowlby's theory says that the child initially develops one primary attachment, and that primary attachment provides the foundation for all future relationships. So Of course, if that relationship is disrupted, it's going to have severe consequences for the child as it ages, even if it has good attachments, you know, with other people. So if we're going back to our example really quick, maybe dad's severe drinking problem bleeds over onto mom. And now they're both basically always drunk. They're always fighting. And she stops responding to the child the way that he's used to. If we turn to look at the child, who's basically, you know, used to being able to depend on mom and count on mom, all of a sudden his main sense of security is absent and he's hiding in the closet waiting for the yelling to stop. I don't know. Typically what you would see here is he starts isolating. He stops seeking comfort. Maybe you start to see some disruptive behaviors in school because he just really doesn't feel like he can count on anyone anymore. 
you know, there was a sense of consistency and now it's gone. So can you guys see how this child potentially maybe grows into a man who doesn't express his emotions to his partner or has difficulty being vulnerable or asking for help? And in times of conflict, maybe he's the first one out the door running the opposite direction, ignoring your calls for a week. <laughs> I mean, of course, not every example is going to be this extreme, but hopefully you guys are starting to see now how your relationship with your primary caregiver has shaped you and how you respond to certain situations, especially in your intimate relationships. So personally, myself, I grew up in a household with a lot of cultural differences. I'm a first-generation American, and my parents came to America from another country right before I was born. So growing up, I think it was just really hard for us to understand each other because our backgrounds were so different. I spent a lot of time seeing my friends having these amazing relationships with their parents, you know, who just got them and they could confide in each other. And I didn't really have that. And of course, to make it worse, I'm an only child. So yeah, I, I just didn't feel like I could have anyone to go to to talk about my problems or who would relate to the things I was going through or who even really cared, you know, because if you're combining that with me moving around a lot and having a few traumatic events that happened to me before I was even in high school. I mean, of course, there's nobody consistent there in all of that time. And so you end up with a classic case of one extremely avoidant individual with a lot of trauma-related anxiety. So for me, that presents as I shut down during conflict. Um, I suck at being truly vulnerable and open with people. And that doesn't mean I'm dishonest. I just, you know, I share where I want to share. And I don't cope well with yelling or aggression. I often feel suffocated or caged, you know, many times over the course of my life. I've been told I'm great at keeping people at a distance and leaving them there, letting them in just enough when I want to. So I wasn't really aware of any of that until I started therapy. So that was very eye-opening. Um, and thankfully, I've been able to to work on that over the past couple years. I'm definitely a lot better than I used to be. <laughs> if you don't understand the meaning of avoidant because you missed my last podcast episode, that's okay. I'm actually about to break down the attachment styles again in a little more detail. Um, and as far as trauma goes, um, if any of you relate to that portion of it, my next episode is actually going to be on that topic and how trauma can actually change the way that your brain is wired. So yes, that can definitely play a further role in the way that you respond to situations, but I'm not going to dive into that just yet. I also want to say that if you do identify with any of the following attachment styles as your own, um, it's not abnormal. It can be worked through and it doesn't define your identity. You can definitely place anywhere on the continuum of anxious to secure to avoidant, and you can even oscillate back and forth. So typically, if you're on one end of the spectrum, what's happening is that you're recreating the pattern from your childhood, and that probably involves choosing a partner who is maybe not secure, but that doesn't mean it's the end of your relationship. Um, it just means that you're going to have to require work on both ends, not just yours. Um, and you also can't just end your relationship and go on the hunt for a perfectly magical, secure unicorn and think that that's going to solve all your relationship issues because it doesn't work like that. <laughs> um, you still have to actively work on healing your own personal childhood issues in order to become a more secure partner yourself. So while, yes, these are categories in the world of attachment theory, 
they're still just surface level titles that don't address the underlying dynamics of your childhood or your partners. So moving on to the attachment system. When I say attachment system, what I'm referring to are the emotions and behaviors that are associated with feeling safe and protected by your loved ones. Getting attached to a person that you like means in times of distress, you're seeking psychological or physical proximity and support from them. So if in those times your partner doesn't provide you with that reassurance that you're looking for, you're basically programmed to try and seek closeness with them and, you know, try and force that until they do, which in this theory can be referred to as protest behavior. <clears throat> so for example, let's say we have this couple, right? Let's call them Anna and Alex. Anna's had a super long week. She wants to go out on Saturday night with her girlfriends. She just wants to chill and not stress, have a couple drinks. Her man, Alex, is at home, and he hasn't heard from Anna in a few hours, so he calls her. Her phone rings twice and goes to voicemail, so he calls again. This time it goes straight to voicemail. Now, if Alex has an anxious attachment style, more than likely he's going to start panicking. Is she cheating on me? Is she dead? Why isn't she answering? What's happening? This is an example of his attachment system going to work. So now he starts blowing up her phone, freaking out, sending a bunch of text messages. Maybe he drives by the restaurant, right? This is all example of the protest behavior. So for this couple, this can go a couple different ways, right? If Anna's avoidant, she's going to see all these calls and be like, wow, like I'm really just trying to hang out with my girls. Why are you being so crazy? I'm not dealing with this. I'm turning my phone off. We can talk tomorrow. And obviously that's going to exacerbate the situation with an anxious because Alex is going to result in, you know, blowing up and ending the relationship or storming into the restaurant or, you know, whatever protest behavior he feels like engaging in at the time. On the other hand, though, if Anna is a little bit more of a secure individual and she has an understanding of the fact that her man is anxious, she can shoot him a text message or call him really quick and be like, hey, I'm sorry I didn't answer. I was on the phone with my friend, giving her directions. We're about to go to a different spot. I'll be home in a couple hours. Don't worry. What this does is provide anxious Alex a little reassurance that, that the relationship isn't under any threat and that Anna cares about his feelings. So, you know, now everybody gets to go home happy. <laughs> so apparently a secure attachment style is like two thirds of the population, according to the studies that are referenced in this book. What that means is that a secure person more than likely had parents who successfully read their distress signals as a child. So they effectively got their needs met. As they grow up, they are good at communicating their expectations. They have healthy boundaries. They have no problem walking away from any unhealthy situations. They can regulate their own emotions. They can respond to situations without resorting in protest behavior. And they're also pretty typically trusting of others that show they're trustworthy. A secure person doesn't try to run from intimacy like an avoidant or get too preoccupied and obsessed with their relationship like an anxious person. Hashtag goals, right? <laughs> Furthermore, the good thing is, is that if you end up in a partnership with a secure person, they can kind of rub off on their partner if they end up with someone who's maybe anxious or avoidant. And that kind of helps the, the partner to be more secure themselves. But that's not guaranteed. And that doesn't mean the relationship that is going to be absolutely perfect. Um, but studies do show that secure relationships are going to go a little bit more smoothly and be higher in the happiness scale than a relationship between an anxious and an avoidant. 
So getting into one end of the spectrum, we have avoidant attachment, which is roughly 20% of the population. Given my background and what I've shared with you guys, this is going to be the attachment style that I identify with most. As children, avoidants have no real distress when their parents leave and also no real reaction when they return. Typically, parents of avoidance didn't respond to their distress in a sensitive or reliable manner. And that's not to say they were neglected. It just, you know, the child just didn't get what they were wanting out of it. So in my case, as I said previously, I think my parents just didn't get my distress. They didn't relate to it. And I also didn't open up to them about my traumatic events. So there was just like a huge disconnect that led to me not trusting them and not opening up to them. And that just led to distance more and more and more. So for example, I mean, I definitely never talked to them about relationship drama because my parents had an arranged marriage and I wasn't even allowed to date. So my mom just kind of looked down on me for talking about boys and being interested in boys. So I guess you can kind of see how that would translate to an avoidant adult being kind of restricted emotionally because they've kind of learned to rely on themselves for emotional support. So they don't really ask for it. And they struggle with being vulnerable, and they're kind of turned off by needy behavior. There's definitely a tendency here to repress emotions rather than express, so they can present as aloof or unreachable. They prefer to maintain a distance in the relationship as a defense mechanism, and will probably try and squash true intimacy, even sometimes leaving themselves like a backdoor or an escape route. And they're definitely always on the watch for behavior that encroaches upon their independence, just because they've had so much of it. An avoidant is probably going to take the glass half empty approach to the way that they view their partner. And as a self-sabotage method, they're probably going to try and nitpick the whole thing to death. You know, this partner isn't enough of this or not enough of that or too much of this. The problem with being so self-reliant and managing your own emotions is that you feel like your partner should be responsible for managing their own emotions. And that means they're probably not getting the emotional support that they're seeking from you, especially if they're anxious. This is something that I've had partners kind of tell me a lot, um, which was surprising to me as someone who's so empathetic and caring for people. <laughs> um, but on the bright side, like I said, I think change is definitely possible when you're more aware of the dynamics of your relationship and what caused them. So even though I know that I don't respond well to protest behavior, I definitely know that I'm way more comfortable now being open and I can kind of provide that emotional support if my partner comes to me and says, hey, I'm stressed or upset, I need you right now. If, I mean, that's in a perfect world though, right? Because if you're in a relationship with an anxious person, that's probably not gonna be how they relay their distress. So anxious attachment makes up about 20% of the population. And as children, they probably had a lot of parental inconsistency in being soothed. So this can kind of make them nervous and stressed about the relationships often because they're so highly sensitive to any fluctuations and they also tend to need constant reassurance and attention even though they have trouble trusting their partner so it kind of creates this like i want this person but i don't want to depend on them kind of dynamic right and that kind of can make for a roller coaster of emotion which you know they can be irrational with the needs that they want met but they also feel like people are heartless because their emotions aren't matched. <laughs> so it's a lot of back and forth here. In my example from earlier, anxious Alice, I think Alex is the perfect example uh, because he's blowing up his girlfriend's phone, driving by the restaurant, thinking the absolute worst is happening. 
they're super sensitive to their partner's mood and behaviors, and they often take that stuff very personally as well. So in a study published in 1994, um, I think I referenced this one in my last podcast as well. Um, It was published by the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Anxious people often end up in relationships with avoidance more than any other type, and that creates the push-pull dynamic that I'm talking about. It actually seems kind of counterintuitive, but if you're looking at their backgrounds, both parties associate this dynamic with parental love, so they're going to associate it with love in the relationship. So in most cases, until they're more secure, that's what they're going to seek, and they'll find relationships with secure people a little boring and devoid of that roller coaster. Now, we also have a fourth attachment style known as the anxious avoidance style, which as you can kind of tell, I'm sure it's a pretty chaotic mixture of the two. This attachment style actually makes up the least of the population, around like 10 to 15 percent. But interestingly enough, if you're looking at the at-risk populations, like for example, if we're looking at children of drug addicts, they make up a good 80 percent of that population, which kind of makes sense if their childhood is chaotic. So of course their attachment style is going to be chaotic. Um, there's a book called Mindsight by Daniel Siegel, um, which is a really good book about like neuroscience and neuroplasticity. Um, and he does touch on attachment really briefly in one chapter. I thought this quote from that section was a really good way to characterize this attachment style. So he says that the children in the other three attachment patterns have developed organized strategies to cope with the absence of their primary caregiver. However, when they're dealing with a disconnected or inconsistent caregiver, this child doesn't have an effective go-to means of coping. This population tends to only date other anxious avoidance, and the relationships are usually very messy and dramatic, if not downright abusive. So if you're wanting to figure out what your attachment style is, um, there are a few tests in the attached book or also online, but... I do think with the information that I've kind of provided, you can maybe guess where on the continuum you fall. Um, I might also say that depending on your partner and the events that you've had in your life, like I said earlier, you can oscillate back and forth. I've definitely been with an avoidant partner and that made me a little bit more anxious. Um, And then I went through a divorce. And so that was obviously a pretty big lifestyle change that led to me being more independent. And so some of the relationships that I found after, they were a little bit more anxious and I was a little bit more avoidant. Changing your attachment style is going to take time and consistent effort. And if you have a partner, it's going to take effort on their part too. Um, And while that can be done, like I said, there are a lot of factors that come into play when doing so. You probably think you could just go find a secure person and that'll help you become more secure, but you could also make them less secure. Or what happens when they have a dramatic lifestyle change, like the death of a parent that catapults them into anxiousness. So ultimately, the answer to change, it doesn't lie in anyone else. It doesn't lie in changing your partner. It has to come from within. It has to come from your own levels of self-confidence, healing your childhood traumas and parental issues, maybe seeking the help of a licensed professional. The more positive your own self-image and the more positive your perception is of others, which is hard in this day and age, I know. This will help you to become more secure as an individual and as a partner yourself. So I know that that was pretty brief, um, but that does wrap up my episode for today. 
I, I hope I didn't skip anything and was able to answer any questions that popped up for you guys on attachment. But of course, if you do have more questions, you can find links to my email, my Instagram, my Facebook group, all on my website, brightsoulhealing.com. If you're enjoying this show so far, I'd also love if you could drop me a review on Apple Podcasts. That would mean a lot to me. Um, and like I said, my next episode will be on trauma, so you guys can look forward to that. <laughs> I hope everyone has an amazing weekend, and I'll talk to you all next time.